0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. The return of Nigel Farage, the return of Reform UK, like death and taxes, they seem to be among life's inevitables. This election year, however, a reappearance of Reform UK, the political vehicle formerly known as the Brexit Party, is striking more fear than usual into a Conservative Party that's in disarray. The Tories are still traumatised by the UKIP surge of the early 2010s, which briefly knocked them into fifth place and led, eventually, to Brexit and the Conservative Identity Crisis. Now Farage, the consummate manipulator, is playing a will-he-won't-he game on the next election, saying he wants to shape it without actually standing. How frightened should the Tories be of their noisy neighbours to the far right? And is there anything to the wild stories that Farage could actually rejoin the Conservatives and eventually even end up leading the party. To help us with all this stuff is a man who's had many dealings with Nigel Farage. Michael Crick is a legendary political reporter and analyst for the BBC, Channel 4 and The Mail. He runs the indispensable Twitter feed Tomorrow's MPs. And he's the author of One Party After Another, The Disruptive Life of Nigel Farage. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Nice to see you again. Nice
1: to see you, Andrew. So last week's
0: Reform UK press conference, uh, people who watched it said it felt like a televised kidnap appeal <laughs> with uh, you know Richard Tice just saying, Nigel, just please call us to let us know you're okay. The relaunch of all the kind of re-entry into the fray of reform, let's talk about that first. How is it going?
1: Are they getting the kind of restart that they wanted? Well, they're getting a lot of attention. Hmm. And I think they're getting a bit too much attention, frankly. They will do well, uh, reasonably well, in the forthcoming by-elections that we know are going to happen in Wellingborough, definitely, Kingswood, just outside Bristol, definitely, and probably in uh, Blackpool South as well, and no doubt other by-elections this year too. But actually, the polling is not that great. I mean, okay, it's 9%, looks good, but remember, uh, UKIP in their heyday 10 years ago or so were doing a lot better in the polling, and they were getting up to 20, 25% in by-elections. There was a whole string of by-elections round about 2012, 2013, 2014, where the UKIP vote just went up and up and up and up. And, of course, they're the forerunners of the, of the, uh, the Reform Party, although UKIP does actually still exist, yes. which is, makes life very confusing. They will be troublesome. And it's not. we're not just talking about votes here, uh, you know, people who would have voted conservative who might vote for reform instead. And we should talk a bit more about that mm-hmm. because it, it's not a straight swap, yes. it's not a straight uh, choice. But also it's about other aspects like party activists. Some party activists, uh, you know, they stop being active for the conservatives. They go off and be active for reform, even secretly. I mean, I think that in the 2019 European elections, which is those elections that uh, the Brexit Party won on the leadership of Nigel Farage, and as a result, Theresa May stood down as Prime Minister and was replaced by Boris Johnson. In those elections... I'm pretty sure there were quite a lot of Conservative MPs who voted for the Brexit Party. Mm. Certainly, there were local uh, Conservative officials who did, and would have been thousands, if not tens of thousands, of members. So there's a, there's that kind of aggravation, and at, and it's, at it's most stark is donors, party donors who might have vote who might have given, you know, hundred thousand, half a million, or whatever, to the Conservative Party, may be inclined to give. Uh, money to reform, but reform, of course, is is no longer as Brexit was and UKIP was really about. Brexit and yeah. Europe—it's—it's it's now largely about immigration, but other other issues too. Although actually, it keeps changing its name. And officially, the party is called—I think—Reform Party colon the Brexit Party, or Reform colon the Brexit Party, something like that. But I mean, that's that's part of its troubles. It's—it's it's had a, it's got an identity crisis. Yeah, it's got a leadership crisis. Who is the leader? Is it Richard Tice officially? Yes, or, or is it Nigel Farage, who's the honorary president? He's, mm. not, he's not the leader, but he does own a majority of the party. He owns most of the shares. Mm. I think of 25 shares, he owns 13. So if he wanted to get rid of Tice, and he's a ruthless character, is Farage, yeah. uh, he could do. But I think he is in two minds about all of this for a number of reasons.
0: What reasons would they be then? Because obviously Farage is the most successful politician who's never been an MP. He's managed to create this image of great success, great power, great influence. But every time he stands, he gets absolutely tonked.
1: That's right. And uh, he's got a lot of fans, quite clearly, no doubt about it. He's got a lot of fans amongst the British public, but he's got rather more people who can't stand him. Yeah. And under a first-past-the-post system, he's never going to get anywhere. He stood seven times, and he's lost seven times. The closest he came was in um, South Annette in 2015, and everybody thought he would win that, um, and he didn't. Uh, And he was actually beaten by the Conservative candidate, Craig McKinley, who was a former acting leader of UKIP <laughs> and, uh, and and a friend of Farage's in the old days. Leading UKIP in 2014, he topped the poll in, in Britain in the European elections. And then leading the Brexit party in 2019, he topped the poll For a different party in 2019. So uh, an extraordinary... And of course, in in all the pressure for the referendum and all of that, he he did change uh, our history. But in terms of his reluctance, well, for a start, he has now got a very successful broadcasting career on GB News. Uh, He is their flagship presenter, basically, 7 o'clock every night, other programmes as well. Uh, I think they're a serious... Issues for the broadcasting yeah. regulator Ofcom on that. I've said so publicly uh, many times, including about half a dozen times actually on GB News. Um, but he he loves it, uh, and uh, it, it you know you can you can tell. I mean I I uh, do Jacob rees Monk's program on Tuesday nights immediately after Farrow. so I often have a little word with him when he comes out. And, uh, you know, he's loving it. He, he's always wanted to be a broadcaster, ever, even before he wanted to be a politician, I think, ever since he was a teenager. He used to ring in as a teenager to phone-in shows. And he'd have to give up that life, at least for a while, at least for a few months. The other thing is that Farage um, is also is besotted by Donald Trump. He's in love with Donald Trump in the same way that many people are in love with Farage. And he thinks that Donald Trump walks on water. He hasn't always thought that way. Early in 2016, he was very critical of Donald Trump. But as soon as he went, and he took part in the uh, American elections in 2016 and 2024. uh, Sorry, 2020, although it was difficult because of COVID. Uh, And I think he wants to go back in uh, this autumn and play a role in, uh, in in that campaign, you know, either either as a broadcaster for GB News or as making the odd speech for Trump or a combination of the two, which is what he's done before. So if he, if he gets involved in the British general election, which is likely to be simultaneous, that will be difficult. So I'd say it's 50-50, really, yeah. that he's probably more than 50, probably 55 that he will play a big role or 45 that he won't. Sunak is clearly rattled. He was telling the Telegraph at the weekend that every vote for reform
0: is a vote for Starmer. And I'm like, don't threaten me with a bad time, you know, with good time. Are the Tories right to be rattled by this? Or is it a case, because we've seen, you know, the reform threat in quotes is being bigged up furiously by GB news, often by people who are members of reform. The Telegraph, the Mail, they express that entire universe is bigging up the threat of reform. Is this a case of people who want more right-wing policies saying... You're in trouble if you don't adopt these right-wing policies that I happen to conveniently have in my back pocket right now.
1: There, there is a lot of that. And the right in the Conservative Party are pretty cheesed off at the moment uh, by uh, the Sunak uh, leadership. I mean, Sunak's not that left-wing as a Conservative, but he's, more, he, he's uh, you know, more centrist than many of the party activists and right-wingers would like. The trouble with Sunak, he hasn't been around in politics for that long. He, yeah. He's only been an, uh, uh, an MP since 2015. So he's only been around, uh, you know, eight years. I'd say to him, look, before every election for the last 30 years, people have been saying, oh, the you know, here's this new right-wing party. First of all, it was the referendum party under James Goldsmith way back in 1997, and UKIP at the same time, and then it was UKIP for many elections, and then it was the Brexit party. And every time says, oh, they're going to cause the Conservatives huge, huge damage. And in the end, the votes they've got have been less than people have been saying less than the polls have predicted and it's not been it's been rather de- and you know and for instance take 2015 that was the big example where people were talking about ukip winning 12 seats in the end what did they win they won they won the one seat uh, clacton uh, which was he- previously held were uh, held by douglas Carswell, who defected from the Conservatives and caused a by-election and was popular locally, well, you'd expect them to hold that. But all the other ones they had there in their sights, they didn't. So, so the reform are not going to win any seats. Mm. They will take some votes from the Conservatives, undoubtedly, and you know activists and money and so on. But I think uh, the Conservatives have got to be very careful here, because if they respond by moving to the right, that will then alienate those Conservatives who are more of a more liberal nature, who, and particularly in the south of England, you know, in, in in the home counties, who may well say, well, the Conservative Party's gone too right wing, I shall vote Liberal Democrat. And so that's the the problem that, that Sunak has. But I think the threat posed by these Farage parties of uh, various names has always been, I think, exaggerated over the years. And the other point is this, and it's one that Nigel Farage makes himself. You can't just assume, that because uh, reform gets 5,000 votes in a seat, that those 5,000 people would have voted Conservative if there hadn't been a reform candidate there. Uh, Some of them would, undoubtedly, but some of them would probably have abstained because they're cheesed off with the Conservative Party, think they've been weak on immigration or Europe in the past or whatever. Uh, Some of them would vote Labour. I mean, some of these people that will vote reform are people that... The Conservatives took from Labour uh, when Boris Johnson won his handsome victory in 2019, and Labour would be hoping to come back to them, but they'll vote Reform instead. But it's still still of some benefit to Labour that they're not voting Conservative. So it's it's a complicated picture. Yeah. some of them, believe it or not, might regard Reform as an alternative. They'd be mulling it up and saying, hmm, "Well, I'm going to v- yeah, I'm going to vote uh, Liberal Democrat or possibly Reform." And you'd think. As a political analyst, you think oh, that's mad that Liberal Democrats and Reform have got nothing in common. But yeah. the voters don't think like that. They think, oh, well, I want somebody who isn't the big two. I, you know, yeah. And often I've been in by election campaigns and, and met voters who said, Well, I'm voting between for the for reform or, or or UKIP or Liberal Democrat. And you think, crack it, but that's that's the way that voters' minds work. So you can't just say that all the votes that reform take at the next election would have gone to the Conservatives. Perhaps, perhaps forty percent, fifty percent would do, but the rest would have gone all in all sorts of ways. It's one of the kind of curses of looking at this stuff
0: that you see poll movements and you start to imply causation to correlation. Exactly. And I've looking at the poll trackers. Here's a coincidence for you: the more Sunak has emphasised small boats in Rwanda, the better Reform UK has done. Yes. So they've gone from like four to five percent to nine percent. But that sort of kind of also coincides with. The reign of Rishi Sunak, you know, yeah. the longer Sunak here, the better. Reformed, is it possible to say what's behind the rise, at least in that polling for reform?
1: Well, I think it is that the fact that mm. that Sunak made it one of his five big issues, one in which he, you know, he was. I mean, the promise originally was he was going to stop the small boats. Yeah, and by the way, that some of the boats are not that small these days, and of course although the figures have gone down from memory, roughly from 48,000 in 2022 to about 28,000, I think, last year, uh, and there was the Albanian deal as accounted for a lot of that, uh, you know, Sunak has singularly not stopped the boats. Uh, He's in a real mess when it comes to, you know, the Rwanda, getting it through parliament, getting it through the courts. The danger from Sunak's point of view is it shows him to be weak. Mm. And so I think that that... Partly accounts for Reform's position in the polls, but I'd be very cautious about the figure in there. I mean, It's about nine percent at the moment, isn't yeah. it? Whereas in the three, three or four by-elections we've had recently, well, they didn't stand in Oxbridge. Yeah. The other ones they had, where where uh, the Conservatives lost the seats to Labour, the the Reform vote was around about four, five, six percent. Yeah. Now in a couple of those, it actually was the difference between Labour and the Conservatives. But as I say, not all of those voters would have voted for the Conservatives. So you can't say that the reform lost them the seat. And on the whole, and in the local elections this year, they only got an average of 6%. This is last May. They only got 6% in those wards where they stood. Mm. One of the big problems the party has, is who is it? It's Richard Tice and possibly Nigel Farage. I mean, many of the sort of bigger names who stood for... The Brexit Party, as reform was then called in 2019, people like Anne Widdicombe and people who'd been Euro MPs Uh, seem to have sort of faded away. The one exception is Ben Habib, who um, is their candidate in Wellingborough, who's a former member of the European Parliament, briefly, one of those Brexit party members who were there for about seven months. And who was said at the time to be the richest man in the European Parliament. He's been a very, very successful in in business. And he's standing in Wellingborough. But although they've chosen 300 candidates, he goes with the list... And there's no names there there's nobody yeah. so so it, it's it's a bit insubstantial as a party and I suspect what will happen is that gradually between now and polling day in the general election the vote will drop and they will end up perhaps with I don't know maybe four or five percent but not at the level of nine percent. I may be wrong but that's been the pattern one thing that's going to be different
0: this time around is that reform are going to stand head-to-head with Tories which they didn't do in 2019 but the temperature of Tyson's rhetoric against the Tories has been absolutely incandescent for the past year he really really hates them yes. he's talking about in terms of destroying them wiping yes. them out yes. What do we know about Tice? He's very much the kind of second figure in, in UKIP. He's a clearly, you know, would love to be that kind of showman figure that Farage is. Yes. He's almost, he looks like a TV caricature of what a right-wing politician mm-hmm. would behave like.
1: Well, it's not that long ago that Richard Tice tried to be the conservative candidate for mayor of London, if I remember rightly. Oh. The, when was it about, well, whatever the election was, round about 2016. The, you know, he's made his money in property. He hasn't got Farage's showmanship qualities Uh, or charisma, but then not many politicians have. He's got a certain charm. He's a bit wooden, perhaps. Uh, I mean, the extraordinary thing is that on GB News, Farage does his show every night, and then when Farage isn't around, when he goes off into the jungle or whatever, who replaces him but Richard Tice? I teased Tice the other day. I said, it's amazing, Richard. There are 70 million people in this country. And when they have to replace Nigel, when GB News has to replace Nigel Farage on his programme, they choose you of all those 70 million. It's extraordinary that it is. I mean, the relationship there is, I mean, he would have to give way if Farage wanted to uh, come back. Amazingly, you know, it's one of these extraordinary stories that uh, I think only I have ever written up. Tice very nearly became an MP in 2019. He became the only Brexit MP at the 2019 election because what he did is he stood in Hartlepool where Labour were ahead, uh, but it was one of those seats that looked like it could fall to the Conservatives. But the local... Well, it did at the end it did, but earlier on uh, uh, in, in the summer of... In the lead-up to the 2019 election, there were a lot of right-wing leading figures in the Conservative Association in Hartlepool and the, uh, who said, look, we shouldn't be standing here uh, we ought to give Richard Tice a clear run against Labour, and the Conservative headquarters said, "No way, you can do that. You've got to have a candidate." And they went through two or three candidates, and they chose a man called Fote, who I think he's a businessman from the the Midlands who was as their Conservative candidate, and they got him to sign the nomination forms and got all the no, you know all the signatures for the people to nominate him. And then a leading official of the Conservative Association went on holiday. And accidentally left the nomination forms in his car... At Manchester Airport. No. But this was not discovered until the day in which nominations closed. And the officials, the, the remaining officials who hadn't, the conservative officials who hadn't gone on holiday, uh, contacted central office. Oh, it's terrible. Terribly sorry. Look, we, we've, uh, you know, the, the nomination forms are at Manchester Airport. We can't get the candidate. He's he's not, he's a long way away. He's down in the middle. Uh we're gonna We're going to, we can't have a candidate. We can't, we can't field a candidate. And Conservative Ed Corps said, you have got to field a candidate. <laughs> so they they managed to press gang this councillor from Stockton down the road, um, rushed round, getting the forms signed, uh, and they got them in with about five minutes to spare. If they hadn't managed that, Richard Tice... I'm pretty sure would have beaten labour in that seat as it in this you know as just as across the the whole of the rest of northern England um brexiteers were beating uh, labour people in in traditional labor seats yeah. And of course, eighteen months later, uh, Hartley Paul actually went conservative at the by-election. Um, so, uh, but it's uh, it was just one of those. Um, was it a conspiracy? It's one of those things. Was it a conspiracy? Was it a cock-up? Um, <laughs> I think it was. Uh, I think there was an element of uh, yeah. There was there was cock-up and conspiracy. It was a conspiracy that didn't work. <laughs> so it was both.
0: Straight up, straight out of the yeah. thick of it. <laughs> this whole kind of, you know, accentuating of the so-called Reform UK threat, is it kind of not really about the general election? It's about what happens after the general election, about the battle for the Conservative soul, as it were.
1: There's a large element of that. There are a lot of people who, 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 in whose interest it is to, to play up reform. I mean, the media, us. Uh, you know, it's a good story. It's nice to have a you know different party uh, to talk about. Uh, you know, controversial figures who are good talkers and generally deliver the good sound bites. It's in Labour's interest because they're causing disarray on the right and splitting the right. Uh, it's in the it's in the interests of the right of the Conservative Party for the reasons you've said. It's even in the interests of the Conservative establishment to say, look, be careful, don't dabble with these people. It could cost us votes it could cost us seats and all of that so it's one of those situations that's in everybody's interest to talk about and slightly exaggerate and i think that's the i would say as somebody of some experience following elections i think there's there's a considerable element of that in this uh, in this situation i mean what happens after the uh, general election assuming a a conservative defeat is going to be fascinating yeah. there will obviously be huge pressures for the Conservatives to move to the right, Uh, you know, from Suella Braverman supporters and Kemi Badenoch, although she's less right-wing, I think, than Suella Braverman, Uh, Suella, uh, Kemi Badenoch, and and certainly the Conservative activists will want a, uh, will say, you know, Sunak was, uh, we never really liked him. Um, You know, if only we had uh, somebody more right-wing. And, you know, some of them will say, if only we had Nigel Farage. We'll come on to that one in, in a moment. But the... The interesting thing, though, is that I think after the election within the Conservatives, there's going to be more and more of a gulf between the conservative activists in the local constituencies and the members of parliament. And why do I say that? Well, for two reasons. First, most of the people most of the people elected in what we call the red wall seats, uh, those seats that have been labor forever, most of those are likely to return. To labor, perhaps not all of them. so all of those MP- the ones where the MPs lose, yeah. they'll be out. And those MPs who won in those seats tend to be strong brexiteers, strong Boris Johnson supporters. They tend to be on the right of the conservatives. And at the same time, the other trend, and I, this is something I've spotted while doing my work on candidates is that the candidates who've been chosen uh, for seats which are will still return a conservative MP or seats that are, you know, in play. Uh, by the Conservatives are not that right wing. There's not many, you could say, are arch Brexiteers. I mean, I assume that Helen Harrison, who was chosen uh, for the other day for uh, uh, Wellingborough, uh, who's the partner of Peter Bone, the disgraced MP, and he's a big Brexiteer. I assume she is too. But um, and there are a few, but there are also quite a few remainers amongst the people chosen for Conservative seats. I, mean, I mean, the best example is uh, James Cracknell, the Olympic gold oarsman, or gold, winning, gold medal winning twice, I think it was, oarsman, who's their candidate for Colchester, although they'll probably lose Colchester. Uh, Rupert Harrison, who's chosen for Bicester and Woodstock. Uh, who used to be George Osborne's special advisor for about 10 years. There's a guy down in Charlie Davis, down in Southeast London, who was heavily involved in the second referendum campaign. He's the candidate down there. So uh, you can't assume that the people chosen by local parties as their candidates are reflect the politics yeah. of the members of those parties. They often choose these candidates on the grounds of whether they look good or whether they perform well. Whether they're local, that's the overwhelming reason why they choose them. What that means is I think you could well see the, concert, the parliamentary conservative party move to the centre rather than to the right. So you've got that, you'll have a real divergence. So what I'm saying is that it may be, if, if somebody like Suella Braverman, uh, who will be, I would have thought, the candidate of the hardcore right-wingers for the next leadership, she may struggle actually to get yeah. uh, the third of MPs to nominate her, which she then needs to get to the final two to go to the membership. And uh, so uh, this is all fascinating. I mean, you know, on the other hand, you've also got the problem that some MPs uh, will face pressure from their local members, perhaps to vote for candidates they don't really like. Um, So it's, it's, it's complicated, but a fascinating situation. And then, of course, you've got the whole question about Nigel Farage and the Conservative Party. Yeah, well, let's start with... Let's
0: start with <laughs> this seems like you know, fan fiction, the idea that they're going to you know somehow admit him and somehow he's going to kind of process to the leadership. Seems like a kind of a, a, a fever dream from the depths of the Daily Mail comments.
1: Well, I think... I mean, it all depends, uh, you know, what happens this year in, in the election and everything, of course. But I think there is a pretty good chance that Farage will join the Conservatives. I mean, you've got to remember, he started... Early on in when he was at school, he joined the Conservatives. He was a great fan of Enoch Powell and Keith Joseph in those days, you know, well known Conservative right wingers, right wing thinkers, really, philosophers. Not only that, when he was a European MP for UKIP in 2004, he tried to become a Conservative MP. He was leader of the UKIP group in the European Parliament and he secretly, behind the scenes, had a meeting in Surrey. Uh, involving Paul Beresford, who was uh, the, uh, is the conservative MP uh, uh, for uh, Mull Valley, I think, and asked how he could become the conservative candidate for Tunbridge Wells, a safe seat and beresford who's who's not does not share uh, farage's politics uh, stressed how difficult it would be <laughs> um, and how he would have to get onto the candidates list and do the rounds and get nominated, all of the you know all the hurdles and nothing came of it now farage says oh no 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 uh, i was approached by them uh, their version and i believe their version is he approached them uh, and uh, to which I, and if farage insists oh no no i was approached by them Well, if he was approached by them uh, uh, and and he had no intention of becoming a Conservative MP, why did he go to the meeting then? Um, (laughs) And he admits the meeting took place. So, um, but that's interesting. Way back in 2004, he did think my future, because he was getting cheesed off with UKIP at the time, it was... It was you know, a lot of his time when he was leader of UKIP or heavily involved. He was constantly battling away from. You know, UKIP is full of some very eccentric people. And he was constantly battling away. And he, he, he was finding it difficult to run it as a dictatorship. And he wasn't even the party leader at that stage. Given the adulation that Farage received at the Conservative Conference last October, and the fact that Sunak said he'd be welcome in the party. Difficult for Sunak to go back on that now. Uh, I think if Farage was to decide after the election, "Hmm, yeah, well, maybe I'll give it a go to apply. I think it's quite a strong chance they'd let him in. And then if they let him in, uh, he might choose to become, get on the candidates list uh, and or fight a by-election, you know, a by-election and you might even find somebody who's willing to give up their seat. Uh, you know, the odd Conservative MP who's willing to give up their seat to allow Farage to take over. And uh, it would a lot would then depend on the whoever is leader after the election, whether they would be willing to let him in and, and whether central office under the leader's command, was willing to let Farage in. But once he's he's let in, I think the chance of him being selected for a decent Conservative seat are pretty high. And you could even see him being elected as a Conservative MP at a by-election, say, you know, uh, a year or two from now, Uh, you know, maybe some point in 2025 or 2026, depending when the by-elections arise. Um, and, uh, now whether he could become leader after that, I mean, that would be extraordinary to be a leader of three different parties in British political history. Uh, that would be much harder because as I was explaining earlier, you need the nominations of the MPs. Mm. And although Farage is, you know, loved, adored by extraordinary numbers of conservative activists, he's not adored by conservative MPs. The number of conservative MPs, uh, who would welcome him privately, he might say something different publicly, but is not very high. And he might struggle, he would struggle, I think, to get the third of MPs to support him in order to get into the, the final two for the leadership election. But nonetheless, I think there's a 20% chance, I will say that 20% chance that Farage will be Conservative leader one day. Good lord! So we've been. Wrong. I'm not, I, I think I don't think he'd ever get become prime minister, and I think he would be a disastrous prime minister. Um, and I, I, p- partly because you've got to remember, Farage ends up falling out with everybody yeah. uh, and, pur- and trying to purge everybody, and often succeeding. He generally bit wins, he nearly always wins his battles against people. But there's a lot of lot of dead bodies uh, in, in in Farage's career.
0: Michael Craig, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. One Party After Another, The Disruptive Life of Nigel Farage by Michael Crick is out now. And if you buy it through the link in the show notes, you will be supporting both Michael and The Bunker because we get a small bonus by bookshop.org and our affiliate links. And if you want to back the podcast a little bit more fulsomely, why not consider supporting us on Patreon, for early ad-free editions, smart merchandise, and much more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Good news your favourite history nerds are back.
1: Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned from the revolting French to some revolting women.
0: Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman.
1: So, download We Are History.
0: Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast.
1: With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Bunker Daily was presented by Podmasters group editor, Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Kieran Leslie. Our Direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Not many of those left.